Tuscan orange grapefruit. My God, America is imploding. I literally started off with a freeze. That was interesting. Guys, hello and welcome back. Uh, this is the first episode of Fan Zone in 2021. Woo, we're here. The tournament is started already. We are on our way. I'm super excited. Uh, we've got a really good match for you. So we've got the number one seed, Kirk, is back. He hasn't played in Fan Zone yet. Uh, he uh, played in Nerdgasm back when that was a thing, and I can't believe I just let that word fall out of my mouth. But uh, that was the last time we saw Kirk. And then we have a debut here today uh, coming in at the number 16 seed, Joe Fairley. So we haven't seen him play in Fan Zone, but I hear that uh, he has debated in other leagues. So this is going to be a very interesting match. So uh, on the desk, judging with me today, it's a family reunion. Uh, first off, we have Roberto. Robert, how are you? I'm doing lovely. I think I might want to change my name to Roberto. I think I can pull it off. Uh, there's, we're, I tried there, to call you Roberto as a child, and you would yell at me. You also called me Bobbert as a child, which similar. I would also yell at you for. But that's <laughs> different. We're not here to settle petty family squabbles. We're here to judge debates, damn it. And I'm looking forward to it. Awesome. And then Maggie is here. Maggie, uh, you're are you are you happy to be here i i think i know the answer <laughs> but... you don't want my honest answer so <laughs> yes i am happy to be here it's been a while since i've judged a fan zone match or i don't think i've ever judged a fan no, zone i think match, you, yeah, you haven't judged fan zone but uh nerdgasm was left so time. it'll be good to you know hear people talk about things that aren't fandom so that's always exciting um that, and that. i was there when kirk played robert and that was a great match and i'm excited to see what joe can do so yeah uh, yeah, that is uh, Maggie just hit the nail on the head with the it is exciting to hear people not talk about fandom, which is why we made this how we made it. Uh, so guys, uh, let's go and talk to the competitors right now. We're going to first start off with the number 16 seed, Mr. Joe Farrelly. Joe, uh, you are debuting in this league at the number 16 seed. Uh, I had someone drop out and then you messaged me the next day and said, I want to play. And I said, Perfect. I got the spot for you. Um, how are you feeling about today's match? I feel good. I feel good. It's um, it's. I like debate. It's so different from the trivia because obviously you have the preparation time. You know what's coming, and it's all about you know, looking at your choice, looking at the other choice, and seeing where it can be torn apart, where it can be, where someone else can criticize it, and figuring out how to, to come back to that. And I, I enjoy that. I enjoy having a bit more prep and a little bit more uh, things to work with. Absolutely. Um, all right, let's go and bring in the number one seed. It's Kirk Kolkowski. Kirk, we haven't seen you since you last played Robert uh, in that number one contenders match. So your last match was in a number one contenders. You're back, and now you get to talk about things that you actually like. Yeah. How do you How do you feel about this match today? Good. I still want my 15 seconds back talking about Cop Duke with Robert. I think about that at least once a week, and I get mad. Um. Uh, yeah, I'm excited to be back. I'm excited about the new format. Uh, I don't know how the number one seed earns to be matched with Joe. Um, I, I know Joe hasn't played here yet, but I've, I've heard of his reputation. And I told people I was playing Joe, and they were like, oh, no, uh, you're in trouble. Uh, so I'm kind of mad whoever dropped out, and um, I had to play Joe instead. Uh, but it should be fun. I always enjoy being here. It's always a good time. 
Awesome. I think if I remember uh, correctly, you can blame Doug Castle. That's who you can blame. So uh, you can send Doug a strongly worded letter. (laughs) (laughs) So uh, guys, here's how the show is going to work. Like they have alluded to, we gave, they drafted some categories from both the worlds of fandom and Warzone. We created some questions for them to debate about. They submitted some answers, and they are going to debate those tonight before us. Uh, Maggie, Robert, and I will then decide who we think the winner is after each question uh, and write it down on our whiteboards or phones or whatever we decide to use tonight. Um, and uh, the first person to three is the winner. So they've been given four prep questions. Uh, if we are tied after those four prep questions, two to two, we will go to a speed round bonus question to decide the winner. So uh, before we get into the big fight, let's watch this fight. Big but that's okay. Uh, we're gonna get started right away with question number one, which was drafted by Mr. Rory of directors. And the question is What is the most accessible Akira Kurosawa film? So, uh, Kirk will get to go first. He will get one minute to open his argument when he starts talking. And Kirk, I will come in and give you a 10 second warning when your time is ending. Okay, we're talking about accessible Kurosawa movies for someone coming in for, for first time, hasn't watched them before. Uh, it may be because, you know, there's two. It's it's a foreign film. It's a international film. It's a black and white film, uh, foreign language uh, to a lot of people. So what, what what are we looking for? What do we need? Um, we need to break down the language barrier. We need something people can connect to. So the movie I picked was Sanjuro. Uh, it is a very straightforward action movie. It's almost, a, it could be considered in the Western genre almost. Uh, so it's a very accessible, uh, universal genre. It's a very simple story. It's streamlined. Uh, so it, um, you know, it, you, there's not a lot to follow. Uh, you, you don't have to worry so much about following every line of dialogue with the uh, the language. Uh, so that makes it a lot easier. So thinking about someone coming in for the first time, uh, you know, trying to get them hooked on carousel because he's made so many great movies uh i picked one that is um simple quick easy and um something's gonna be fun for them to watch so i went sanjuro all right ending a couple seconds early there we'll now bring in joe joe same thing you have one minute to open your argument and i'll come in with 10 seconds left to warn you when we talk about accessibility of a movie we we want to make it accessible for everyone. And you're introducing someone to a director that they've never seen before. But with Kurosawa, this is, you have to remember these are movies that are a little older. And um, unfortunately, when it comes to foreign language films, there are several other factors you need to consider. You know, is it a good movie? Is it still relevant? Uh, will it inspire them to carry on with the filmography? And that's why I chose Rashomon. At its heart, this film is an exploration of the human compulsion for lying and the meaning of what truth is. And I think in 2021, uh, that is definitely a theme that we can all agree that is relevant. I think Rashomon is perfect movie to introduce someone to Kurosawa because when you're introducing someone to Kurosawa, it needs to be accessible. And by being accessible, it is relevant. Its themes still carry on. 
But when you are introducing someone to Kurosawa, you have to remember that this is Kurosawa and they are going to be watching Kurosawa once they've watched this one. So it has to be one that they can watch and want to watch more. Time. All right. All right, guys, you now have five minutes to freeform debate. Before we start, I just want to ask a specific word of the question. It was most accessible for someone who's never seen Kurosawa before, right? Yeah. That was the exact word of the question? Yeah. Okay, I just want, I just want to clarify that before we start. Yep. So um, five minutes freeform. Don't talk over each other. Try to have a nice even back and forth. If one of you starts filibustering, I'll come in and tell you to shush. Uh, but otherwise, yeah, let's do it. I think uh, the the main problem I have with Rashomon is it is it's a good movie. That, I mean, they're a carousel; they're all great movies. Uh, but it is still a little art house. And thinking someone coming in at entry level, I think there is a little bit of a um, it's 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 the story. I mean, you're you're back and forth. You're going. You're you know you have a lot of storylines going on with a lot of different characters. And I think that's the biggest uh, drawback to bringing someone Rashomon. To me, Rashomon is the maybe second, third, fourth. Uh, Kurosawa movie they watch after they've just gotten accustomed to that like that world he builds, then you can get them something a little more off the rails like Rashomon and take them to a different place. Uh, that's why it was something that was a little more just baseline to start them off with. I understand that, but I also think with Sanjiro, I think the issue you have with Sanjiro is if you actually look at the story of Sanjiro itself, you know, it's 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 a samurai, it's, it's a samurai movie, but it's about him coming to help a group of villagers who are hopelessly outnumbered. Now that sounds roughly familiar to another Kurosawa from a better Kurosawa from a Seven Samurai. And I think if you're going to introduce someone with that sort of story, then you go with Seven Samurai. The reason I've chosen Rashomon is because it is accessible for everyone because of its themes, because of its story. The fact that it's about the characters, it's about people seeing themselves as the hero of their own story and what different versions of the truth are. I think that is something that is relevant for everyone. And I think the issue with Sanjiro, not only that, although not directly, it is a pseudo sequel to your Jimbo, and if you're going to start with something, you don't start with a sequel, pseudo or not. Well, I mean, I'll, I'll comment to that. The, it is it is a sequel in spiritual sequel. Uh, there is no connective tissue between the character or the story. Character just gives the same name, and that's the only way way you even know it's a sequel. Otherwise, there's no connection. You could watch one before the other; it doesn't even matter. Um, and you're talking about themes and things like that, themes, story, you know, re relevance. Um, when someone's coming in, I'm thinking of some, like, I'm thinking about the people that I would want to introduce to Kurosawa. And A, those people a lot of times aren't the kind of people who are worried about themes and, you know, like deep themes stuff. They just want to watch a good movie. Or, and B, if they are concerned about that stuff, there's still that language barrier where you got to follow along and, and, and try to try to keep up with all that. With a movie like mine, like I said, it's a universal uh, genre. It's just an action movie. It's very much just, you know, these are the good guys. These are the bad guys. We're going to fight. There's awesome fight scenes, awesome action scenes, and you can get them in. And then you, you, you kind of, they're just you know, dipping their toe in the water into that kind of movie, that kind of, uh, theatrical experience then you move them on to a more complicated movie. the reason i didn't do some uh seven samurai movies like three three and a half hours long so i, I got something a little more compact something like that so okay now you move on to this next we do seven samurai then we'll do rashomon here's something really really fun kind of off the wall but now that you're getting into it let's watch rashomon but uh, i feel like sanjuro is that great jumping off point but I think if you look across the internet, and I know you can't always rely on these things, however, you look across the internet, you look at Rashomon, it currently sits on average around fourth in the list of Kurosawa movies that you should start with. Um, Sanjuro very rarely makes those lists, but the thing is, that's what Rashomon is timeless because its story still resonates 
it still resonates now with Sanjiro. You, you you have that problem of it not if it rarely making that list, and therefore it's not as recognisable. So if people who are familiar with Kurosawa aren't recognising it as something that's top of Kurosawa's work, is it really going to be the sort of film that you're going to be that is accessible to everyone if people who know Kurosawa don't see it that way? I think the problem with lists like that is you are you're you're asking the question to people who already know Kurosawa, love Kurosawa, very familiar with it, and they're going to put the the movies they most want people to watch, and that's an easy trap to fall into. It's like, oh, I love this movie, watch it, but you bring somebody in fresh, it's like, what is this? You know, Sanjuro is lower, probably lower on the list because it's not again. It's we're not talking about best movie; we're talking about most accessible. You know, it's not going to be at the top of everybody's favorite carousel list for people who love carousel, but it is going to be a movie where people come in fresh. Oh, there's cool sword one fight. There's a lot of fun. Uh, one other thing I want to talk about too is because um, I don't want to bring up the ending. Uh, my movie has both our movies have Toshiro Mifune. Um, Mine has him. The difference is mine has him as the hero. And I think that's what's so great about Kurosawa when he's when he's the lead, when he's the hero, he's so magnetic and so charming that he breaks that language barrier. He's one of the few people I think who you can listen to speak in a different language and still just feel what he's expressing. I think he does that much better as a hero than he does as a villain. Well, that might be good if you're introducing someone to Shiro Mifune rather than Akira Kurosawa. The thing with Rashomon, Rashomon was the twelfth feature-length film uh, released, um, directed by Akira Kurosawa, and I think with that you. That's that's why you use it as the introduction because you know he's not quite perfecting his craft, but he's done it enough times that you can see the bones of his craft. The fact the way he focuses on character and focuses on story, you know. And like I said, it's with Kurosawa, you're focusing on his intention. His intention was to have Sanjiro as a sequel, and it's Kurosawa's intention. That's why we should time. Okay, uh, Joe, you get to close first. One minute to close your argument when you start talking. The reason, again, I chose Russian one is because, you know, it is Kurosawa showing his craft, but it's not the best of his craft. You introduce it with Rashomon, it's accessible because of the story, but when you introduce something like that, it inspires people to go on and watch films like The Hidden Fortress and watch Seven Samurai. Watch these great movies because you've already seen how good he can be and you, and you know he's going to get better with Sanjiro. It is 50-50. Like Kirk already said, you're thinking about the kind of people that you're introducing it to, and they're not the sort of people. But the thing with Rashomon is because its story is timeless, because it focuses on the human nature and human characters, that's why you show that, because it's accessible to everyone. And he's already said in his own argument that he's thinking about certain types of people that he would be introducing that movie to. Rashomon is still relevant now, whereas Sanjiro it's not being as well recognized. And that's why you need, that's why it's the most accessible film for someone to watch who's never seen Akira Kurosawa before. All right. Kirk, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Yeah, I think it all comes down to how are we going to introduce people? I want to get people to Seven Samurai. I want to get people to Rashomon, but I don't want them to be one and done. I'm like Joe said, I am thinking about specific people, the types of people that I want to bring in and introduce to uh, to Kurosawa movies. I know if I bring a lot of these people, I bring them in and I show them Rashomon the first time, they're going to be out. A lot of weird stuff going on. A lot of, a lot of stuff to follow. They don't like subtitles. Um, they're, they're, it's it's going to be hard for them to stick with that. Um, you, uh, Sanjuro is uh, straightforward, great leading man, great characters. Uh, it has that universal, uh, it's about the characters like all Kurosawa movies are, but on a more basic level that you can go into. Um, again, Sequel name only, uh, completely freestanding story. Uh, Joe talks about perfecting the craft. 
Um, and, you know, very minute details. We're all film lovers here. Of course, we're looking for that. Someone coming the first time isn't going to know that. This is how we teach them. We let them learn. You, it's baby steps. You start with a smaller movie and you say, yeah, you like that? Look how much better it gets. So let's start them out the basics so they stick with it and want to stick with it. All right. Bring in the judges. Uh, do we all have our answers? Or do we need Memento? Okay, I will start. Uh, I'm going with Kirk. I think uh, Kirk did a really good job of painting the picture for me of, uh, I think the type of person that he was talking about, that that thing about the type of people was exactly what we were kind of looking for in the question. And I think he's he's right of like showing like it's a very streamlined movie uh, because I haven't seen either of these. The only one I've seen is Seven Samurai. So uh, the one that... Uh, is very streamlined. He painted a good picture of what the movie is and why how why it would affect uh, the people that would be watching it for the first time. And I think he did a good job of counteracting Joe's argument of why Joe thought his would be uh, good for first time. So I'm going with Kirk. Uh, Maggie, we'll go to you next. Where are you leaning and why? So I also said Kirk pretty much for all of those reasons that you said. The term like accessible, I understand where Joe is coming from with the the themes and stuff, but I think that Kirk was more able to really explain why a general moviegoer that's first watching Kurosawa would watch this movie instead um, and then go on. Joe really was focused on like inspiring people to watch more, and I think that Kirk um, answered just answered the question better. Okay, so Robert, your vote doesn't count, but uh, we are talking about themes. Where were you going? Okay. I also would have said Kirk. Uh, I did like the themes argument uh, as far as, you know, relevance, you know, maybe the most relevant movie uh, by today's standards that everybody might should go watch or, like, learn from. Uh, I liked that argument, but I, I agree with everything both of you had said, I think, as far as introducing somebody and wanting, you know, not turning them off break down the language barrier that's a huge huge point for a lot of people as far as the word accessibility and i just didn't think there was a point for joe's argument or against kirk's as strong as that so all right so with yeah, that now, kirk yeah now the round's over i'd give my point to kirk as well. <laughs> <laughs> was good, good all right guys uh so kirk gets the first point uh, we're going to move on to question number two, uh, which is a category that Joe drafted. This is uh, the category also in Warzone of comedy, uh, specifically the Cornetto trilogy. And the question is, uh, who is the best character in the Cornetto trilogy? Uh, so Joe gets to start this one off. Joe, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. I think there's always a tendency when people are arguing about the best of something uh, to allow personal biases to take precedent. Uh, for example, my favorite Star Wars movie is Return of the Jedi, but I would always argue that Empire Strikes Back is the best. And I think the same applies here. My favorite Cornetto trilogy character is Nicholas Angel, but there's no question in my mind that Gary King from The World's End is the best. He's definitely the most developed, uh, the most well-rounded in the entire trilogy. You know, when we first meet him, you know, he's recounting the tale of the first Golden Mile pub crawl. You know, he's portrayed as this lovable scamp, the rebel, the scoundrel. And the audience is drawn to him, you know, despite some of the more douchey traits. <laughs> um, but as the film progresses, however, you see more and more that he's stuck in the state of arrested development. And he's constantly trying to live this last great moment he had with his friends. And despite his friends having grown up and moved on, he just has the most developed arc. He has the most character and he has the most interesting story. He's definitely the deepest character 
within that trilogy. Time. All right. Kirk, we now go to you. One minute when you start talking. All right, when you ask this question, you know it's going to be the, the choices are going to be characters played by Simon Pegg because they're always the best characters. And I went with Sean from Shaun of the Dead. Um, I think Sean is the best character in, at, in the sense of the most entertaining and also the best character in the sense of the best uh, person within his movie and within his story. Um, I think he has the best arc. I, I just love the arc from beginning to, you know, where he is, where he finishes, and everything he accomplishes along the way. Um, I think he just has the, um, he, he, he's, lifts the supporting cast around him, the supporting characters around him the best. Um, I just think he has the best story and um, you know, who he is to that movie and what he is and what he becomes, I think is the strongest of the three uh, main characters in the, in the trilogy. So I'm going to Sean. I'll concede the rest of my time. All right. Conceding about 15 seconds there. I love cutting out so much. It's probably my favorite thing I do. Uh, guys, you now have five minutes of free form. Uh, Sean versus Gary. Five minutes. I think the issue I have with Sean, who he's a fun character and he is perfectly uh, written for the movie he's in, is that the character really le- lacks any real depth. You know, he is a bit of a fuck up and a loser, but and the architect of his own downfall. He really doesn't undergo any real development. I know he has the moment with his mum in the pub, but, you know, Gary has. The moment in the World's End pub when Andy pulls down his sleeves and you see the cuts on his wrist because it's so subtle. And he, when you see it, it doesn't really come as a surprise because you actually realise that everything this character has done throughout the movie has been because he's depressed. And I think that's the deepest moment that any character has. But also he has that moment when he pretends his mum's dead. And you think that's just a sort of a laugh-off moment. But as you get to that scene, it adds weight to that scene because you realise exactly why he's doing the things he's doing. Yeah, I think, I mean, if you talk about what they accomplish and where they end up, I think if you look at Sean, I think Sean has a, uh, has much more change than Gary does. I mean, you look at Sean at the beginning, he's self-focused, he's self-centered, um, he's lazy, um, he doesn't really care about what's going on with his life. At the end, he's turned all that around, and he still has his friend, he's, you know, he still has that connection to his old life, he hasn't given that up, that part of himself up yet but he still made his life better. You look at Gary, I mean, at the beginning, he's getting his friends to get together to get drunk. At the end, we see him getting his friends together to get drunk. There's not a lot of development there. I mean, he's 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 still that same guy, and he's kind of. I mean, he is a sad character in the sense that it's sad, but just kind of like pathetic. Like you know, it's just that's his whole thing. It's like I just want to go party. He's mean. He's he's cruel to his friends. He's 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 unlikable. He's just not not a likable character. And you learn why, but still, it's not somebody throughout the course of the movie I want to root for. Sean very quickly becomes a guy I want to root for on his side. And as soon as the crap hits the fan with him, he's there. He's watching out for people. He's taking care of people. Where Gary is just completely self-focused the entire time. I think a fun and likable character is a good thing, but it doesn't necessarily mean that they are the best. For me, a best character is someone who is well-written and has development and has a little bit more depth to them. And I think, you know, you say talk about Sean's development, but at the start of the movie, he's sitting playing video games with his friend. And at the end of the movie, he's sitting playing video games with his friend. All right, he's got a stronger relationship with Liz and he had a moment with his mum. You know, where Sean of the Dead really shines is how the characters exist within the story. But The World's End, it draws strengths um, from its characters. And it shines where the plot takes a backseat and where the character interactions, you know, and has those big character moments within the movie itself. You know, his reveal is the most hard-hitting all than any of them because it's because of his... And it's more poignant because of the journey that actually got us there. You You see him as... 
you know, this douche guy who's bringing people in just to get drunk. But by the end of the movie, you realize exactly what it's because it says it because it's all he's got. And that's, that's quite a deep moment. And Sean doesn't have any of those moments. I disagree. I mean, you have the moment with his stepfather, you have the moment with his mom, you see him really having to face, you know, it's all about him avoiding reality. I mean, the, the point of the Sean of the Dead is Sean is the zombie and it's about him coming back to life. And you see him being forced into situations where he has to live, he has to face life, the ugliness of it and the goodness of it. And that's that's his character growth. That's the, I think that movie, I disagree where, you know, that, that movie's all about plot. I think it rides very much on Sean's shoulders and it's a, it's his journey. It's his, it's his hero's journey you know of development of becoming that guy yeah at the end he is with his he is with his friend he's still playing video games he hasn't let them that that, that part of himself die he still has that connection to his past but he, now he the difference is now he has a future where at the beginning he didn't now he has other things in his life but he can still he he has a balance of his life of things that's for him and things he enjoys but also other people he's thinking about other people and taking care of other people but i think with gary king i think you have you have to actually look at the sort of the, the subtext of the film itself you know this is a guy that's suffered through this depression because he can't recapture his lost youth. And despite how much he tries, it literally takes the One end minute. of the world for him to actually be able to reconnect to that. And it's supposed to be about that message is that it's not the end of the world if you can't recapture your youth. And I think that's the point. It is definitely that it's the most mature and it's the most grown up. And that's why he's the best character because he has the most death. He has the most development and it's the message surrounding that character and what that character represents that actually brings that out. And that's why he's the best character because, at the, you know, the trilogy is itself, although it's not a directly linked trilogy, it, the trilogy is thematic and it's, it's young. It's the trying to be mature and then it's trying to recapture your youth and realizing it's not the end of the world. When that happens, I I can I, I I know I keep harping on the end of the movie, but you know we're talking about how it's not the end of the world if you can't recapture youth. But at the end of the movie, it's the end of the world, and he's still trying to recapture his youth. That's still his thing. He still can't get past that. Sean gets past his thing. Like I said, he keeps that that other part of himself. He finds balance, but he moves on. Gary doesn't move on. Gary's still that same guy at the end of the movie. Time. That's the message of the movie. All right. So Kirk, you will get one minute to close your argument whenever you start talking. I think Sean is more naturally the everyman. I think he's more naturally the guy you want to root for. Um, again, I think he has that arc of going from, you know, living death to being alive, realizing there's a whole big world around him that he can live and that he should needs to interact with and people he needs to take care of uh, beyond himself and his own little sad world. Um, Gary doesn't get out of that, even, you know, that takes the end of the world. Um, Sean has, you know, he he realizes the moments with his, you know, his mother, he has to say goodbye to his mom, when he realizes the connection he had with his stepfather. I mean, that is, de those are some devastating scenes. I think those are the most poignant and emotional scenes in the entire trilogy. Um, you know, he realizes his relationship with his girlfriend, how that important it is and what he has to do. Um, he becomes a human. And at the end of the movie, he's, you know, he's lived that. Um, Gary, I don't root for Gary. Um, I feel bad for Gary. Um, I feel worse for his friends. He treats his friends horribly. Um, he's not a guy you want to root for, even you know, like I said, he has a sad story, but you're not you're not on his side. You may pity him, um, but he's not somebody that you connect to. Time. All right. Joe, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. The thing is, this isn't an argument about who is the most likable character, it's who's the most who's the best character and that's why i chose gary riley because he had sorry uh, gary king over sean riley because gary has that development he has that arc you know it's easy to stay the same and i think that's the point you see sean of the dead and it's about you know when you're young you can have fun 
and you start to grow up. Hot fuzz, it's about being mature, maybe a little bit too mature. But when you get to the world's end, it is about when you're older and you're trying to recapture your youth. And like I said, it takes the end of the world for him to recapture his youth. And that's the message of the movie is that if you can't recapture your youth, it's not the end of the world. And like the rest of the characters in that, that movie, you have to move on. And Gary King is the vehicle to get us there. He has those deep moments. He has the moments where you see that he's got the bandages on his wrist. You see, and that informs the rest of the character's choices throughout the movie, why he is doing what he's doing, why he pretended his mum was dead to his friends. You know, he may be treating his friends badly, but you, when, at the end of the movie, when you see the motivations behind that, that's what gives you. It's a moment of realisation. It's the final piece of the puzzle. Time. Alrighty. Oh, boy. Um... That was a good fight. Good back and forth, guys. I don't have to yell at you guys. I like it. <laughs> um, Robert, your vote didn't count last time, so we're going to start with you whenever you're ready. Uh, yeah, there's an ad playing on my whiteboard app, so I'm uh, okay. There we go. I'm good now. <laughs> we're good. You guys good? Yeah, go ahead. All right. I went with Joe on this one. Uh, I think that it was really, really even most of the time. Most of the middle fight was just like, oh, your character doesn't change. Mine does. Your character doesn't change. Mine does. And it was very, very just the same argument on both sides until I thought the... Uh, so it was all up in the air until the closings, and I thought Joe's closing was just much stronger. Uh, I think he counteracted as much as he needed to uh, against any of Kirk's new points and wrapped his argument and summed it up uh, very, very well. Okay, I'll go next. Um, I actually went with Kirk, so Maggie gets to break the tie here. Uh, I went with Kirk. Um, I think because to me, the uh, the your the, what Robert was talking about, like the your character doesn't do anything, the mind changes thing. I actually uh, I took a that a lot a, a lot of weight in that, and I thought Kirk did a really great job of being like, well, my character does change. And the change is actually better for the character than your changes for yours. Ergo, mine's the best character. And I thought that um, just his overall uh, argument about um, like every time Joe threw something at him about like, well, he doesn't have any like dark moments. Well, yes, he does. He has this moment and this moment. Like that to me carried a lot of weight. So uh, I went with Kirk. Maggie, you get to break the tie. I hate doing this. <laughs> Um, I also went with Kirk. So also sort of for the things that Tim said, where I think his defense was really good. I, cause I think the characters are very similar and what they were saying about them was very similar to what they do in their movies. I just think that Kirk had a better defense there. Plus I think Joe got a little bit lost talking about the movie and less about the character. Um, and that's why I went with Kirk. Okay. So, uh, Kirk is up two Oh, we're going into the third question, which is uh, one that was drafted by Mr. Kirk. Uh, but believe me, I know it uh, from my own experience. This is something <laughs> both of these gentlemen, <laughs> both of these gentlemen are very strong in. So I'm very excited about this fight. And this is in the category of Star Trek, uh, specifically the original series of films and what we got for them. The question is, who is the worst original series villain? Worst villain in an original series movie. Kirk gets to start this one out. Kirk, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. 
best Star Trek villains, regardless of TV or movies or whatever it is, are the villains that bring something to the story, bring a character, bring something out of the characters, act as a catalyst uh, for exploration, for adventure. Uh, sometimes it's a person, sometimes it's an inanimate object, but when it works, it always adds to the story. Um, I went with a character who does not do that at all. Um, the most throwaway generic villain in the entire series, I think. I went with uh, Commander Kruge from Star Trek III, uh, unfortunately played by Christopher Lloyd, uh, is just a very generic villain. Um, does uh, Unnecessary the story, unnecessary the plot, um, is just kind of there to fire, let, shoot lasers. Um, it's just, it's a waste of the actor who plays it. Um, he does not bring out the best of the characters or the story and makes for a very flat, and it even makes a not great story, maybe even worse. Uh, so my point is, or my pick is Cruz from Star Trek Three. All right, all right, Joe, you now have one minute when you start talking. I think throughout Star Trek's history, um, we have been given some truly great villains. Uh, we've also been given some pretty bad ones, but uh, none were more disappointing and bad than the god of shuckery in Star Trek V, The Final Frontier. Um, despite the movie's portrayal of Cyborg as the villain for the majority of the movie, um, the final reveal of the god of shuckery, um, the god that Cyborg has been searching for, um, being the true villain, is first of all obvious, and second of all, dull. You know, when you reflect on Star Trek V, it becomes clear that Cyborg is a victim, a victim lord there by the god of shuckery, under the guise of discovering the truth behind one of the greatest secrets in the universe but all we get is nothing on nothing omniscient nothing all powerful just a shape-shifting head who with laser eyes who can be taken out by a few well-placed phaser blasts that's why this is such a bad villain you know they, he adds nothing he's disappointing he's underwhelming and he's unforgettable or forgettable i should say caught myself there <laughs> all right uh <laughs> you guys now have five minutes of free form when you start talking joe i think the problem with your pick is you picked the most interesting thing in your movie the execution wasn't great but when i watch star trek 5 the one thing i'm left with is what does god need with the starship you know what why why was that you know you say it's not omniscient it's not all powerful it just it's basically a shyster and he's tricking people into thinking that it's God. That is an awesome Star Trek villain. And if the whole movie would have been about that, that would have been great. That is a fantastic, very interesting. Cyborg was a terrible villain. And if they would restructure this movie to make to bring God of Shakari like in like the end of the first act and make him the one that is trying to take the ship over and manipulating everybody, that would be a great start, a classic Star Trek story. Um, as it but is, though, yeah, exactly. But I mean, that's not that's not that's that's the bad that's a bad movie. That's not a bad villain. But with Cruz, in your opening argument, you said he brings nothing to the story. Well, you might say that about your movie, but the overall arc of those Star Trek movies, he does. That is the entire motivation for Kirk's hate of Klingons in the undiscovered country. Yeah. You, know, you say he's just there to fire and shoot lasers. The god of Shakari just is just there to fire and shoot lasers out of his eyes. You know, you say he doesn't do anything for the character. He is the motivation for Kirk. For the remainder of the series, he is why they have to travel back in time. He is why he hates Klingons. That's why the Klingons are after him and are able to save him from this pointless god. Yeah, he's the reason why our main character is a bigot in a xenophone for three movies. That's not a plus. That's not something we want to see in our main character. That is that brought this that brought, kind of brings the series down. Um, as far as what he does, God of Shakur isn't just there to shoot lasers. That's all he gets to do. We, I'm sure there's more he could have done, but we didn't get to see it. 
um, Cruz does nothing for the story. The story is Genesis Planet is there. Genesis Planet is dying. Spock's alive. We need to get Spock there. It's almost like they wrote the script and finished it. And like, okay, we're 20 pages short and Kirk doesn't punch anybody. And somebody back there was like, Klingon warrior. And it just, they, so they brought in the most generic character. They waste Christopher Lloyd. Christopher Lloyd does nothing. In the movie. They hide him under 20 pounds of makeup and he gives the most like generic villain uh, performance ever. You take him out of that movie. You have David die a different way. And the, movie plays out exactly the same way it does the, the plot from beginning to end he's just there to take up space like i said to be the to the, be the big bad that the story itself doesn't need but the thing is star trek 5 takes its time to show cyborg as this smart manipulative and calculating villain who then just turns out to be a victim in the end so you'll think you must assume that the person who is manipulating Cyborg must be even more powerful, must be even greater. It's going to be great to see. It's going to be an amazing showdown. But what you're presented with is not a mastermind, especially compared with Cyborg. You know, God should be at least twice as menacing, twice as powerful, twice as compelling. But you get none of that. The sum of its wrath, re wrath reduced to a few, Ooh! that's all you get from the villain. It's pathetic. You know, Krooge may be a mildly forgettable villain, but he's in no way the worst with a villain you want to know their motivations you want to know why they can be ruthless Cruz wants the genesis device you know he kills his gunner for a mistake david is killed on his orders where he even says i don't care which one you kill at least he has those ruthless moments those quotable moments the only quotable moment regards to god in star trek 5 is what does god need with a starship he doesn't even have any quotable lines the only reason i know that george murdoch plays him is trivia study yeah now you see yeah you say like Cruz kills one of his own guys because he's mad he doesn't care yeah, the most like generic bad guy stuff possible is what he does. It's like it's filler. It's it's villain filler. He doesn't do anything original, anything new. He's not a character we care about or come to know. He's just generic Klingon villain. That's it. The God. I, I mean, you call we're calling God of Shakari the villain because you know Cyborg turns out to be his minion, but Cyborg is the villain of that movie. I mean, for for two and a half acts, he's the villain of that movie. He's what we get to see. We don't get to see the God of Shakari in full action. Yeah, he comes in and gets blasted photon torpedoes. That's going to take out anything. But like I said, he was uh, he was able to manipulate people from far distances to think he was One God, minute. come in as God, and make him worship them. That is compelling. I want to know more about that. Again, the execution was terrible. But if you rewrite that story, the God of Shakari is a great Star Trek. Movie. But despite you know, despite the Star Trek series, the TV series. Um, focus on the more exploration factors. You know, the Starship movies, look at Wrath of Khan, you look at the Undiscovered Country, and they were a little bit more action-y. So you need, and even since then, they've all had to have a villain. And at the end of it, when you're telling a story, when you're showing that the villain's not the real villain, there's actually someone that's been pulling the strings the whole time, you're thinking, especially with the way Cybox presented as this compelling, manipulative mastermind, you want the thing pulling its strings to be twice, at least twice that. And it's just not, you know, again, you can quote Cruz. You can say, give me Genesis. You remember his memorable ending. You know, I have had enough of you. All you get with God is a couple yeah. of torpedoes right. and it's done. All right, Joe, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Um, Cruz, while forgettable, is not the worst villain. He's an average villain in an average movie. His motivations are clear. He has a ruthless streak and he has the memorable moments. The only memorable thing about God is a line that he's mentioned in. He doesn't even get a memorable send-off, like I said, you know, you, you know, the, which is one thing you need in a villain. You know, Khan, Cruz, General Chang, the Borg Queen, Nero, they've all had endings that you can remember. But 
a Klingon bird of prey turns up out of the thing and shoots it out of the sky. And just everything you've learned about cyborg, like I said, you need to have the one pulling the strings to be twice as menacing, twice as powerful, twice as compelling. But you don't get that. You get no history. You get no nothing in the in this past. You learn nothing about them and they get blasted away at the end. It's a disappointing villain. It's a disappointing end to a disappointing villain. And it's just unforgettable. And all, the only real memorable line he has is, Ooh! <laughs> All right. Uh, Kirk, one minute to close your argument when you start talking. Joe's right. A lot of the Star Trek movies are a lot more action-oriented, like Wrath of Khan, great villain. Uh, Star Trek Six, Chan, he mentioned, great villain. Or Chang, great villain. Um, but this one, you have an action movie with a very generic action movie villain adds nothing to the story like those other villains did. Um, Joe said that uh, you know there's no history. We didn't get to learn anything about the uh, God of Shakari. That is disappointing because I wanted to know so much more about it. And I didn't get to find that out. Uh, execution is terrible. Um, but the idea is fantastic. Uh, he's, he'd be a great Star Trek villain. Uh, Kruge is generic. It, like I said, it wastes Christopher Lloyd. You get nothing of Christopher Lloyd's very unique uh, talents and acting abilities in that role. Uh, it could have just been any generic actor, uh, but they waste Christopher Lloyd. And um, again, it's the whole movie. Um, you know, the God of Shakari is really just our MacGuffin more than anything. He's not really the villain. Um, we have a whole crappy movie with a whole crappy villain in Star Trek Three time all right all right that was uh oompa loompa doopity doo my goodness uh this is a good fight uh i have my does ever you guys have yours okay maggie uh you had to break the tie so you get to go first yeah this was tough because i think you guys both had good points but I went with Kirk again because I think that he's just better. He was better at coming up with points against Joe's arguments. Like he was able to come up with, he was more convincing with the generic and with the, how nothing happens in the movie, like how um, crew plays no point in the story and hitting really back hard at Joe, I think, with the fact that, you know, um, the God isn't even really the villain of the movie. He's just sort of there at the end. And so that sort of took away from Joe's argument for me. All right, Robert. Uh, I went with Joe. Uh, I I disagree with some of the the the, the things that Maggie said. Uh, I think you know Kirk saying that he's not a villain. Well, it was still accepted as an answer, so we have to take yeah. the arguments as like the, I don't know. But also, I think Kirk gave a lot of ground by saying that the execution was terrible, and Joe was like, "Yeah, that makes it a bad villain." Uh, I think Kirk. Uh, admitted too much and gave too much ground, and I think Joe really hopped on that. So as far as like debate style, I think Joe played that very, very well, and I uh, agree with everything that Joe says. You know, Cruz may have been a rushed and sort of generic villain, but like Joe said, I'll take generic over like actively terrible. Uh, so I think Joe argued why God is much worse, extremely, extremely well. All right, I get to break it. Um, I have mixed feelings. Uh, between you two of like uh, what you guys were thinking. I ultimately went with Joe. Uh, and the reason I did uh, the, the, the big thing against Kirk for me on this one was I get what he was trying to do by saying um, I wanted to see more 
uh, but the execution was terrible, but like it made me want to see more. But like Robert said, it was he the question is worst villain. He is the villain in the movie. Uh, so that point that Kirk was throwing out, like I get what he was going for, but it didn't quite work for me as a judge. And I think Joe did a really good job of just saying, like, yeah, look, Cruz is not very good, but he has clear motivations. He has clear this, clear that. He does this, he does that, and the god doesn't do shit. Uh, so that's basically uh, that's why I went with Joe. So with that, uh, Joe keeps it alive by getting that point. It's now two to one in favor of Kirk as we go into the final question of the prep round. Uh, if Kirk wins this one, he will win the match. So Joe needs this one to stay alive and go to the uh, next uh, the next speed round so uh we are going to move on question four is in the category of james bond another one that i know both of these guys are passionate about so <laughs> it'll be interesting uh and the question is what one thing could you add to the daniel craig bond films to make them better uh so we are going to start with Joe on this one, since he drafted it. Joe, you have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Uh, Daniel Craig's Bond films, um, they are hit and miss. Casino Royale and Skyfall are fantastic. Um, Spectre is okay, and Quantum and Solace isn't great. Uh, the issue with Quantum came really from the 2007 writer's strike. Uh, the action scenes were written, but nothing else, and the story was made to fit around those action sequences. And while the idea of a criminal organization attempting a coup is more original than Skyfall's Mission Impossible borrow, uh, it lacks the villain to pull it off. And that's why I would add a more menacing, more compelling villain to Quantum of Solace. You look at the villains during Craig's time as Bond, you have Le Chiffre, menacing, cold, calculating, wonderfully performed by Mads Mikkelsen. You know, Silver, a vengeful, fascinating character that Bardem nails. And despite some of the writing around Blofeld, uh, Christopher Waltz is always a delight to watch. But Matthew Omerich's uh, Dominic Green is forgettable, a slimy middleman, uh, which can work when it's uh, a reveal of a big bad later on, but you don't get that. You just don't get that. And I think you need a better villain for Quantum of Solace. Time. All right. Kirk, you now have one minute to open your argument when you start talking. Okay, Joe's answer is to make Quantum of Solace, uh, Solace better. I agree that needs to be a better movie. I think all the uh, following three from uh, Christina Royale need to be better movies. And I decide the way to do that is to uh, keep Vesper Little alive instead at the end of Casino Royale. Uh, instead of having her kill, uh, die, have her betray Bond, and be the recurring character throughout the story. Um, I don't like a sad Bond. I like a pissed off Bond. I look a. I like a Bond out for revenge. I don't like a sad Bond. Um, Quantum of Solace fails not only because he's a villain, but because you have this sad sack Bond running around being all weaky. That's not James Bond. Uh, let's get him up. Let's get him motivated to move on um, without just this dour story uh, that flows through the rest of the uh, of, of the timeline uh, of these movies. I think Vesper being alive uh, invigorates the character, uh, invigorates the rest of the story, uh, invigorates the rest of the plots that are going on around Bond, and brings things to a better close with Quantum of Solace. All right, with uh, Spectre. Time. All right, guys, this will be interesting. Uh, I like this already. <laughs> Five minute free form. When one of you start. 
So I think mainly the issue with Matthew Morick's Dominic Green is that he's just he feels more like a henchman than an actual villain. And that, I think that's where the movie drops down. You look at License to Kill, I think Timothy Dalton as a Bond out for Revenge in License to Kill, I think it's a fantastic performance. And I don't think that Vesper's Vesper being alive necessarily creates that bond. The only good thing about Quantum of Solace is, is Bond. And it is the way Daniel Craig plays it. And it's because it's that motivation, it's that revenge. And I think that is probably the best bit of Quantum of Solace because it informs those really well-written and performed action sequences. And I think that's where the mistake, one of the mistakes in that choice comes from. Well, I think I would say that keeping her alive, he still, I mean, in Lights of the Kill, he was out revenge for his friend. It wasn't because the woman he loved died, which is a completely different type of revenge, a different type, completely different kind of story. Um, I think if Vesper's alive, he's still motivated. He still has that edge to him. He's still angry. Um, but he's he's being more active, and with her there, he has more to do than just be like revenge, revenge, revenge. He's out for it. He's finding things out. That makes that entire story of Quantum and Solus a lot more interesting than if it's just revenge and sadness. Also, well, I think, good. I think if you look at Casino Royale, I think Casino Royale it is the best of Daniel Craig's. You know, it's a fantastically well written movie, and you have to remember it is the origin story for the reboot of James Bond. You know, you know his relationship with women has always been you know part of the movie since Doctor No, and but to give that trait and explanation to do it in such a way to show that the first true love of bond's life not only betrayed him but was died because she tried to save him in the end i think it informs the character for the rest of the movies and it also informs the character choices that have been made by previous bonds despite this being a reboot i think if she survives um, I believe that despite her betrayal, he would have stayed with her. And it shows throughout Quantum Solace how her death affected him, affected him uh, and what moving on from that means uh, to him as James Bond. Uh, and, you know, it allows him to have those moments that he has with Camille. Well, I would say, I would say that uh, if, if she betrays him, if he's betrayed by the first woman he loved and turned against because of that problem, that would inform things the same way. Again, just give it more of an edge of anger and payback more than just sadness and depression. Um, I also think I'm going to put you on the spot here for a second, Joe. Your pick was the better villain, a better villain for Quantum of Solace. Go. Well, yeah, because if you have to, you have to look at Quantum of Solace, you have to look at the way the movie works. And, you know, you have Matthew Ulrich playing just what is basically a henchman who, you know, all the only final fight is swinging the axe at Bond. And it's poor. And the thing is, you actually have to look at Spectre as well because of how poorly and it is loosely tied together with that reveal of that he was controlling it all. But you don't have that menacing thing. Matthew Ulrich works well as a henchman, but you have to remember he's working for Quantum and it has that thing. And, that, but, and that's never paid off. And because that's never paid off, you have to bring it back to Quantum of Solace and have a more interesting and more dynamic, more menacing villain. And going back to the Vesper issue, because of his motivations and his revenge, or because of her loss, it allows him to have those connective moments with Camille. It allows him to connect with her, not just on a, you know, it allows us to connect with her on an emotional level because she lost family and he lost someone that was close to him. It allows her to perform those moments. The small moments of good in Quantum of Solace come from Daniel Craig's performance and it's the performances around those moments. I'll get back to that, but I want to push you on this show because your answer right now is just a better villain. It just makes the movie better. I want you to tell me what that better villain is. I think to get this point, you have to tell what the better villain is. You just say, get a better villain because we all know that. We all know that it's a ter terrible villain. What's the better villain though? Well, the issue, like I said, with Matthew Romick, he is the henchman. You know, you know he's working for Quantum of Solace, oh. but, and, 
you know, Mr. White is there in the background. I think you need to show who is pulling the strings. I think you need to show why this organization is the way it is. You know, you they loosely tie it off with Blofeld in the end. It's a character like a Blofeld. That's the issue of the movie. If they had a better villain than that, they could have informed it into Spectre towards the end. But because they didn't have the rights to use the Spectre organization, they created Quantum and they didn't pay it off by bringing it back to Blofeld. And it was just, oh, I was the architect of all your pain. It's just a photo of Matthew Ormerick in a cell at MI6. It doesn't inform the movie, and that's why you need to have this more menacing villain, the one that's pulling the strings, the Blofeld type that is never revealed. And Matthew Henry is just, it, 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 it's just a puppet. And it, it doesn't work with the movie, and the specter of it later on. I, I completely agree. I completely, completely agree with you. We need a better villain, but you're not giving that vil better villain. Going on to uh, Spectre. The Blofeld um, type. It's if, the Blofeld type. If, if, well, yeah, I mean, obviously that's always the better Bond villain, but I mean, like, I need more detail. Um, if Vesper's alive, go, you know, we're talking about Spectre now. You know, you when you bring in Spectre, uh, Blofeld is a very clunky villain that because he's just, oh, out of nowhere, I was I was pulling the strings. I was manipulating everything. And it's I'm just kind brother. of weird. It doesn't really, yeah, I'm your brother. It doesn't really connect, but they needed to create that connectivity to the character. If it had been Vesper the whole time involved working with Blofeld because of what she was able to draw from what she knew of Bond, that would have made that story and that character much more intriguing. All right, time. Uh, thanks for reminding me that they were brothers in that movie. Jesus <laughs> Christ. Uh, okay, so uh, Kirk, who? Uh, Kirk, you get one minute to close your argument when you start talking. When Vesper died in a Casino Royale, it just kind of really just set the tone for the entire series, and it wasn't a good tone. Um, it kind of dragged everything down um, and made the Bond character somebody we really didn't want to see as Bond. Um, if she stays alive, uh, she is a overarching force throughout the rest of those movies. Where is she? What's she doing? Why did she do this? At the end, again, like I said, you connect her to Blofeld, you connect her to Spectre, and she becomes the, the dots that connect, that really didn't connect that well um, as the movie stands, as the story stands right now. Uh, you bring her in, you replace her with a kid, with a, like the male and swag character, you replace her uh, with Vesper instead, and all of a sudden you have great stakes because you go back, oh my gosh, it's Vesper. Um, how is what's Bond going to do? Is Bond going to you know stay with her? Is he going to you know get revenge for the betrayal? How is he going to handle that? You make the character of Bond deeper. You make the stories more interesting. You give them more stakes, and um, you just make again. You not only make Quantum of Solace better, you make all three subsequent movies better. All right. I would like to point out that Kirk, kind of a Blofeld character with his cat there with him. <laughs> All right, Joe, you now have one minute to close your argument when you start talking. As I've already said, Matthew Wilmerick's character is more of a henchman. You need to show that Blofeld type who's pulling the strings. I know they revealed it, Inspector, that Blofeld was the one behind it, but it's so clunky and it's so poor, and it doesn't really connect with Quantum of Solace because it's Quantum and then it's Spectre, and it doesn't work, and that's why you should have revealed the Blofeld type in Quantum of Solace. I think you have to remember with Vesper's death, it brings Bond back to MI6. He'd sent off the resignation letter just before you know, the, it was revealed. And it, I know the betrayal's still there, but we can see how close Bond is with Vesper and how much he loves her. And I do think that he would have stayed with her and that resignation would have stood if he had, if she had survived. You know, that death informs Craig's performance of Bond for the rest of the series. It, perform, it informs his moments with Camille, those moments of deep, 
connectivity that he has with her because they both lost someone close to them. I think keeping her in there is poor. It doesn't fit with the Bond style. It doesn't fit with the Bond way of having the different girl each time. You need a better villain in Quantum of Solace purely for the reason that the villain is poor, it's a henchman, and you need to have someone pulling the strings, a bigger villain, and that poor villain inspector does not cut it. All right. Can you just like tell me what the question was again? The question again is Cody here or is it Maggie? Uh, I'm sorry. Add one thing to the Daniel Craig Bond films to make them better. Okay. That's what I have in the document. And then let me pull up exactly what I have that I gave to them. And there was clarification there too. It's there was clarification. Yeah. At one point. Yeah. I'm just pulling it up. So the initial, yeah. What one thing could you add to the Craig films to make them better? And then the clarification I made later was one thing you would add or change to make the movies better, whether that's a behind the scenes or actually something in the movie. Implying they could choose change a director or change out an actor right. or something like right. that. Um, okay. I am ready. You're not ready? I use that, yeah. Okay. All right. You want to vamp for a bit? Uh, sure. Um, I haven't had dinner. Uh, what are you gonna have? Do you think? I don't know. Uh, I gotta order something. Probably some fast food type item because I'm a fatty. Because sure. I'm a fat fatty. But uh, uh, are you feeling like Culver's, like chicken? Like... I can't get Culver's delivered, unfortunately. Oh, um, that's a shame. You ready, Maggie? Yeah. I'm going first <laughs> uh, because I broke the tie last time. Um, I'm going with Kirk. And I froze right at the reveal. <laughs> I'm going with Kirk um, because I think he did a better job of answering the question. I think he did a better job of, of giving me an overall how the, his change would affect all of the films. Um, and Joe started to get there at the end by explaining the uh, how it would tie, eventually tie back to Blofeld. But the initial first big chunk of Joe's argument until Kirk put him on the spot was, which by the way, the balls on him for doing that uh, until he put him on the spot. It was just, Oh, a better, like we just need a better villain. And that didn't work for me. Whereas Kirk gave me exactly what could happen. He painted a beautiful picture for me of what could happen if his change had been made. So I'm going with Kirk, Maggie, you get to go next. Yeah. I went with Kirk for the same reasons, basically, just with the question. And he really, he had more of an idea of how that would change the movies and how he thinks it would change them for the better. I think that Joe had a good argument about, you know, why the villain in Quantum of Solace was bad, but not necessarily, and how it would make Quantum of Solace better, but not necessarily how it would make the series better. Um, so, yeah, that's why I want that. Robert, your vote didn't count, but where are you leaning and why? I would have gone with Joe again. Uh, the reason there is, I think that uh, when Kirk put him on the spot, I think he answered well enough. You need, you know, we need to see the big criminal organization. We need to see the Blofeld type, even if it's not Blofeld. And then I think Joe did a very, very good job of saying why that uh, ch Kirk's change would hurt and hinder the movies because that influences and it informs Craig's performance in his character for the next three movies. Those movies are, uh, would be different for the worse. Should Kirk's change be implemented? That's why, that's what I really liked about Joe's argument. And I didn't hear anything about why, you know, that change wouldn't be a good thing from Kirk, uh, about 
Joe's argument. Oh, I, he, you know, he put him on the spot, and I think Joe answered well enough, but I didn't hear anything from Kirk about why that change wouldn't help the movies. All right. Well, fair enough. But with that, anyway, Kirk is the winner. Your winner is, I guess that's what I normally am supposed to say. <laughs> Kirk won. Yay. Okay. So, Kirk, uh, we'll talk to you first. Uh, you won the number one seed moving on. Uh, how are you feeling about the match? How you played? Um, really good. Uh, I was real nervous coming. Like I said, I know Joe's got a reputation for uh, being a great debater, and he lived up to it. Uh, to be honest, I didn't get the points I thought I was going to get. Uh, I thought this would go to the uh, speed round with Joe and I each getting our own our own points. Uh, so I, th- I thought I had that Star Trek one in the bag. But it's always that's always the one I lose, the one I think I'm, mo- I'm most likely to win. Um, but no, Joe did great. And you know Joe's definitely not a 16 seed. Um, he 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 was he was a great competitor, uh, and I was I was glad to fight him. But yeah, I'm excited to like I said, I, I really love the new format, and I'm excited to move on. Uh, this means now that you are playing the uh, winner of Andrew Barr Ooh. and uh, Joe Harrison, who you have played before mm-hmm. back in Nerdgasm. So uh, how do you feel about that matchup? Um, that would be fun. Um, uh, I'd like you know play Joe would be fun again, but I mean, me and Andrew are always debating on our own anyway. So to do it in an official capacity, I think would be fun. Yeah. All right. Well, we'll definitely have that match coming up. Move over to Joe. Joe, like Kirk said, definitely not a 16 seed. Uh, three of the four of these were split decisions. A very close uh match overall. How are you feeling? Yeah, not bad, not bad. I'm definitely gonna blame on the fact that we started at 3 a.m. my time. So we're going to go with that. That's why probably why I couldn't get the words out straight. But yeah, you're right. They, they were all split decisions, except for the uh, the first one, which even I would have given the point to Kirk on. So I can't really uh, moan about that. Kirk, fantastic arguments. Um, did put me on the spot with a couple of them. Made me struggle. So yeah, absolutely fantastic. Deserves to win. Um, so uh, we will have you back for another match later this season when the tournament is over. Is there anybody uh, that you know is in the league that uh, you just kind of want to yell at and scream at and make them cry? Absolutely not. I just want to argue my points and uh, be put on the spot like this and just, yeah, have a good time. Sounds good. Awesome. And sometimes argue about movies I haven't seen. I I was going to ask you that off camera. Uh, okay, so uh, with that, uh, let's go to the judges for final recap. Maggie, any final thoughts? Yeah, I think that um, they both did really well, especially those last two questions were super tough. Um, they both had good back and forth, and it was really hard to pick a winner. But overall, I look forward to Kirk moving on in the tournament and seeing Joe back, because I'm sure that he will come back with uh, some vengeance. And Robert, how about yourself? Final thoughts? Yeah, that was very good. Uh, you know, there there weren't really any uh, questions. Even the first one, there weren't really any that were straight up blowouts. I think all of them were pretty close, pretty even. You know, a couple sentences here and there could have won it for either person. So I think that was a yeah, very close and good match. Even if it didn't go all the way to the speed round, I think uh, both players have something to walk home proud about. I would agree. So, guys, that'll do it for us for Fan Zone today. Thank you so much for watching. Uh, it's been a great match, and like I said, uh, we've got more coming for you. Uh, we're actually going to be back next week uh, with Robert 
is going to be playing in a match. He's going to be playing ah. uh, his good pal, RJ. Uh, so they're going to be playing each other uh, next week. That's going to be a very exciting match. And uh, that's the number two going up against the number 15. After that, we will go back to our uh, bi-weekly schedule where we will be every other week. So you get another one next week, then back to bi-weekly. So uh, guys, thank you so much for watching this episode. We'll see you next time with another match. Bye-bye. That's my bad, I was sending a tweet.